the Flex Success Podcast, where we teach you how to be less shit. Covering all things science relating to nutrition, training, recovery, and more. Who knows, we might even sprinkle in a dick joke or two. (laughs) Now, can I start that again? I feel Mm -hmm. like that was really fucking terrible. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night whenever you're listening to the show. I have with me my co-host, Dean McKillop, as always, and we've got two guests today, two VIPs. I don't know who's more important. You guys can battle it out. <laughs> we've, got <Struggle>. Dr- <laughs> we've got an arm wrestle. I'm not sure how we're going to do that uh, as this is online, but we'll figure it out. We have Dr. Gabby and Flex Success coach Shannon, who have both appeared on the podcast before, but are now appearing together. So welcome, ladies. Hey. You're outnumbered, three I'm, girls, one guy. I'm feeling very dominated right now. <laughs> I've decided that I may just decrease or decrease or increase. There you go. I'm not a musician. Gabby, you'll laugh at me for this, the decibels of my voice to try and make myself a little bit <laughs> extra manly in the presence of three wonderful women. <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> no, you're placing. Yeah. Uh, now, today, we're going to be talking about something very different that we have not yet discussed on the podcast before. Gabby wanted to improve the dialogue around some different nutritional strategies outside of what we usually discuss, which is, you know, having weight loss as the end goal, macro tracking, understanding calories and whatnot. And we might open the floor with asking you, Gabby, to talk about uh, intuitive eating versus mindful eating, contrasting them and, you know, defining them and letting us know what the misconceptions around those are. Absolutely. I love that question. Um, So one of the things that I commonly see on Instagram is this statement or this idea that comes from people that I think probably have good intentions, but they say something like, if you've never tracked macros, you won't be able to do intuitive eating. And that I think really paints the picture of the common misconceptions around intuitive eating, that it is a tool that it's something to be used to control or monitor nutrient intake, and that the outcome should be something specific to body weight, like weight management or weight reduction, or the prevention of weight gain. And really, intuitive eating is not a tool. It's an entire self-care framework. So it's a set of principles that get to not just not just nutrient intake, not just nutrition, but also the mental and emotional aspects of health. And the reason that it is weight neutral is not that it's um, against against potential weight loss. Potential weight loss is a possibility. It's just that weight modification is not the purpose of intuitive eating. And that intuitive eating as a self-care framework is not meant to be a tool to change one's body weight. Mm. So mindful eating is a skill set that falls under the umbrella of the principles of intuitive eating, but it's also something that can be practiced independently. And mindful eating is about paying attention to your food intake experience and eating with intention and practicing reflection and setting intentions for how you want your mealtime experience to look and ensuring that if you have a 
an emotional need or you have a craving that you're not necessarily um, choosing food to fill that craving. So it's also about paying attention. Really, all of these are about paying attention to your internal state. And a lot of people think that that's just really woo-woo feelings-y, like, oh, you eat based on emotion. Well, no, actually, it's about identifying your emotional state and then determining um, what decision you want to make to adjust that emotional state as needed. Hmm. And it can go to physiological states as well. You're determining what your current hunger levels are at a meal time, and then determining how much food you probably will need to be able to satisfy your physiological hunger. And then once you've satisfied that physiological hunger, you go on about your day and you live your life. Mm -hmm. So instead of being regulated by external factors that say you have to eat this much at this time, um, you're responding to internal sensations. And that instead of eating just, you know, and you can eat, you know, if you are identifying that I'm having an emotional eating experience, there's nothing wrong with that. But most of the time people will find that food is not meeting their emotional needs. So a big uh, focus also is finding other ways to meet your emotional needs. Because even though we turn to food for that quite often, it's going to take a lot of food to be able to fill those needs because that's not really what we actually need. We need interactions with other people and things that are are fulfilling to us mentally and emotionally yeah if intuitive eating um can you know fill our emotional needs do you think that it could help me fix my daddy issues (laughs) i mean you would be surprised like because we're what like and i've said this before we focus so much on like external factors and then we don't do any of the internal work and i i really like i kid you not i have had people realize that like yeah it's their it's kind of they have these relationships with food because of their parents they're like oh my parents never let me have candy and now when i'm around candy it's such a a phenomenal thing like i don't know how to control my candy intake because like in in my mind i'm still six years old and i only get candy twice a year at birthdays and christmas yeah and it's like wow, how are we supposed to undo 30 years of those thoughts and behaviors at, at the same time? Because people want to do both, right? They're, they're like, I want to use intuitive eating to lose weight. I want to use mindful eating to lose weight. And it's like, well, you've got like 30 years worth of these behaviors and these internal states that need to be addressed. You know, trying to do that even in the course of 12 weeks on its own is challenging, but doing that while you're trying to lose weight, it's, it's very difficult. It's yeah. almost spinning two, two wheels in opposite directions. Yeah, absolutely. I live in, uh, Dean and I live in a gated community and there's a lot of kids in the area and I've made friends with a six and a seven year old. We had a sleepover the other night mm-hmm. and we have lollies in our house. Um, cause you know, we, we, a whole variety of foods, including lollies. And when they come around, they go wild with lollies and they hide them in their pockets. And like they, they, one of them um, threw up the other day at a birthday party where there were lollies because she ate so much. It made her sick. So even at six and seven years of age, they have this idea that, you know, they're so that, that candy is naughty and they shouldn't be eating it. And when they get the opportunity, they need to stuff themselves silly. And it makes me really sad to see. um, And I try and, you know, not overstep the mark, but also say, Hey, you know, we can just enjoy a little bit of candy and move on. You don't have, you know, but it's, it's really challenging. And I think that, um, this is a primary example of what you're talking about. 
It's yeah. something that's referred to in the book as the last supper phenomenon. So you, you think that it's the last opportunity that you have to eat these foods. And I think that's one of the misconceptions around intuitive eating is that if I just let myself eat whatever I feel like, then I'm just going to continue on eating these foods. But it's um, almost a case of like repeated exposure kind of dilutes the alluring quality of these foods over time. So think about it, it's like going on holiday and going to a new place. You're like, oh, all these fun foods for me to try. And then by the end of your holiday, you're like, I just really want some vegetables and I want to get back to my normal way of eating. Like most people have probably experienced that before. And it's a similar yeah. thing with intuitive eating. You have to go through that process of allowing yourself to have unconditional permission to eat to have these foods so that you can then make decisions and not out of fear and restriction, but out of what you actually really want and need. Mm, yeah. I love it. Can either of you guys give me an example of, because Gabby, you mentioned uh, mindful eating and really being present with your food and being mindful of the experience. Can you give me an example of what that might look like or Shannon, whoever? Mm -hmm. There's um there's a really great book uh, by Michelle May and she kind of talks through this mindful eating cycle and I adapted that a little bit so that um, instead of taking sort of a macro approach of looking at like just you know why do I eat and when but like in the moment if you're going to have one meal you can first ask yourself the one question that I think it's so funny we, we really overlook this but am I hungry? So that's one thing, you know, why do people usually eat? Well, maybe because they're bored or they're lonely or they're out with friends. Um, there's a quote, I think that Evelyn Tripoli might have said that the only time that we're not thinking about eating is when we're eating. <laughs> Otherwise, we're thinking about food all the time. So you ask yourself, am I hungry? And then how hungry am I? If I'm at maybe um, a two on the hunger scale, and you can, it's really easy to find an example of a hunger scale, but two is hungry. Like you can feel your stomach is grumbling. You need food. You're going to start feeling bad soon. So at about a two or a three, it's mealtime. And then how much do I want to eat? Well, keep in mind that a human stomach is about the size of maybe one or two fists. So that's about as much food as you would need to gently stretch the stomach and start sending satiety signals to the brain. So how much do I want to eat? And then what do I want to eat? And I think this is where people really get caught up in worrying that they will either, you know, choose, um, as Shannon said, you know, they'll have the, the last supper thing and they'll just want just cakes and candies all the time, or they won't know, you know, what's optimal for their intake at that moment. And this is where we kind of have to step back for a second and say, what are we doing this for? Are we doing this to help repair our relationship with, with food and facilitate normal eating patterns? If so, then maybe our optimal macronutrient ranges have to be put on the back burner for right now because we're doing something that's a little bit more arguably important and lasting. But we can still say, hey, you know, I know that I want to have some carbohydrates and a protein because I've noticed that that helps keep me full and I'm about to work out. And I know what foods after eating for my entire life, I know what foods usually sit well with me versus those that don't. So we pick that amount of food. We eat slowly without distraction. This is one that's really challenging also. And one that I'm not great at because I eat 90% of my meals standing up at my computer. <laughs> but ideally you put everything away and especially if you're going to do this with a food that has been sort of scary for you, that is really palatable and you think I'm going to eat so, so much of it without distraction and you immerse yourself in the, in, in the experience that you are looking at the food, you're smelling the food, you're experiencing the mouthfeel and you're really, really tasting it. And what I found with a lot of clients is they'll do this and be like, it wasn't actually that good. It tasted so much better when I was restricted and I never got to eat this food. But now that I can have it at any time, it's just kind of okay. 
And you check in with yourself during the meal and feel, how hungry am I now? If I'm no longer hungry, I could probably stop eating, even if there's still food left on the plate. And when we have a history of macro counting where we put exactly the number of macros on the plate and then we eat all of those macros and then the plate is clean and the meal is done and that's when we stop eating and we haven't tuned in to how hungry we are or not, that's another place that's really challenging. Hmm. We might leave half of the meal or whatever and then... We say, okay, I'm done eating now. I move on with the rest of my life. Or we might say, I want to eat, you know, to maybe a a six or a seven. Maybe I'm okay with being a little bit full. There are some times when we will go through that cycle and mindfully say, I'm not hungry right now and I'm going to eat anyway. And there might be a variety of different reasons for that. There's not any rule to say that you can only eat in response to physiological hunger. But just quite often people tend to find that if they do that a lot, they're eating when there's no presence of physiological hunger, that might not have the most beneficial outcomes. Hmm, So again, there's no like real reason. It's just sort of tuning into what are you going to eat and how hungry are you? What are you going to eat? And then, you know, why do you want to eat those things? That's another big thing. If I do want to eat right now, why, why do I want to eat? Is it because I'm having some emotional things going on? Is it because I'm physiologically hungry? If you're not physiologically hungry, you could obviously still make the choice to eat, but you might make the choice to do something else instead. And it's not about restricting that you're not allowed to have those foods. It's just redirecting to something that's probably going to be more effective to meet your needs. Yeah, I think taking the time to like pause and reflect really is key because a lot of the time it's very impulsive and sometimes we don't need more food to find that satisfaction. We just need to savor what we're currently eating. Yeah, I think like the biggest takeaway message here for everyone that's listening is uh, it's all realistically about becoming conscious in your decisions around both how much you eat and what you eat. Uh, And I think Uh, Just by allowing yourself the opportunity to eat whatever you may wish to have without the presence of feeling restriction is likely going to lead to far more conscious decisions. And it used to be called conscious eating, actually. That was the first term for it. And then it was shifted more to mindful eating because conscious eating is like this awareness and then mindful eating adds an intention to that awareness. Mm. To me, this discussion also kind of points towards making deliberate choices and sort of eating deliberately, if we can just throw another word in the mix as well, because I find that a lot of people who are really busy and don't give any thought to their food, they're just sort of grabbing what's there, what's convenient, what's cheap, what's easy. But here we're talking about deliberately deciding and thinking about, am I hungry? What will fill my needs right now? Um, and, And kind of taking that approach which takes more thought than eating mindlessly, but it does. Yeah. Yeah. Having a choice, you know, that's, that's one of the big, that's another thing that they stress is that when you have choice, you're not acting out of, um, you know, restriction or, um, deprivation. It's, it's not about that. Oh, I don't know when I'll have this again. Like I need to eat this right now, regardless of how hungry I am. But Mm -hmm. if you can eat that food literally at any time, why not wait until you're hungry and you can really enjoy it? And why overeat to the point where you feel physically uncomfortable and it just reduces your enjoyment? Yeah, totally. Mm. Yeah, I think I'd count my blessings at my upbringing in my food environment coming through being a, a performance-based sort of athlete, quote-unquote, has lended me to very a lucky, I suppose, mindset that I have currently around food, even to the point that if we take the extreme dieting that I've put myself through in bodybuilding, I actually have never had that moment where – 
I felt like I couldn't eat something, but rather that I just know that if I eat it, it's going to limit me in other ways. And there's never a moment of like me, like you just said, then like just hanging to eat a particular food, but rather just more of all of the foods. Yeah. Because ultimately bodybuilding is your choice as well, isn't Mm. it? Absolutely. And, and, and it's a conscious decision that I make in a time that I know that I'm psychologically, uh, professionally in work, physically capable to handle the stresses of that dieting phase. Uh, and then everything is centered around exactly that conscious decisions to make the process a little bit more effective and also manageable. When you did your comp prep, you entered it with the knowledge uh, and lots of experience around nutrition, knowing that there's absolutely no benefit in restricting food types. So I think you were really lucky in that regard. I had a very different experience with a bodybuilding comp prep. Gabby, I know you did one and I'd love to hear about your experience too, but I uh, did it many years before Dean without the knowledge that I have now. And I did it under a coach who was sort of like a clean eating guru And he had very strict rules around what I can eat, what I can't eat, food timing, supplementation, blah, blah, blah. And I ended up developing a binge eating disorder and definitely self-diagnosed, but I was definitely orthorexic. And man, it took like a lot of time to pull myself out of that hole. Thankfully, I feel like I'm, I'm definitely out of it now, but I feel like that experience really makes me empathize with people that are dealing with with those issues and I can see how like any sane intelligent person can you know develop this because I count myself as sane and intelligent if I can say that about myself. Um, and but I think there's some ideas that you know I'll just snap out of it or that's stupid or that's silly but it's not the case it's Mm-mm. it's really just just an unfortunate situation and just a little bit of uh just lack of knowledge or ignorance really oh yeah yeah Um, Well, I actually was diagnosed with ED-NOS, so that's eating disorder not otherwise specified. And this was back when I was in graduate school. Uh Um, And so that is the title given when you don't fall cleanly into anorexia nervosa or bulimia. You have a smattering of of, um, behaviors from both. And I also had exercise dependence. Uh-huh. And what I what I came to find out, um, you know, as I went through school and whatnot, and I have been out, you know, I went through that for a few years with cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and what I came to find out was that athletes really are kind of predisposed to developing um, disordered eating because they have a lot of grit. Um, and it's often, it kind of flies under the radar. When people see that you have exercise dependence, they think you're just training really hard and you're really committed, but yeah. no, it's, com- it's, it's a compulsion. It's, I can't not do this. I don't necessarily want to be here all the time, but I can't not, I have such crippling anxiety if I don't do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Um, so it is, it's something that's so prevalent and, and clearly underdiagnosed as well, especially when we consider that, you know, there's a whole spectrum of disordered eating behaviors. So when I went through my prep, I had the, a similar experience that my coach was um, pretty strict on the, the food types that I was allowed and, you know, food timing. And again, with the clean foods and whatnot, like, oh, no artificial sweeteners and <laughs> only this type of fish or this type of vegetable or whatever. And after that show, I rebounded horribly. I went right back into my binging cycles. And fortunately, I was able to identify it. And I could sort of, I had enough like met- metacognitive skill to start to reflect on, okay, these are the, you know, thoughts and behavior patterns that I saw before. 
before. So I was able to kind of like you, you know, I kind of pulled myself out of it. Um, but it does, it takes a long time to work your way out of that. And it's kind of like, you're always managing it a little bit. You know, I still will sometimes have thoughts that I'm like, oh, that's a very restrictive thought. Or, you know, I, I probably, you know, I don't need to adhere to that one. It's just kind of fleeting, but I can identify that those old thought patterns are still there. But it is, it's such a, it's so valuable to be able to empathize with people and say, you know, there's, you're not, um, yeah, it happens to people who are functional and intelligent and not like there's no one who is not at risk, especially doing physique sports mm-hmm. that almost can. It, I mean, there's, there's data to show that dietary behaviors increase the risk of developing disordered eating or an eating yes. disorder. I mean, mm-hmm. an appreciable amount. Um, and, and so it's something that I think really needs to be spoken about more because we talk so much about, you know, um, habit formation and adherence and like how can we control our external environment to make things a little bit easier so that we can, you know, engage in these behaviors. But I think we do a disservice by not talking about like what's going on internally, because I think as much as we talk about, you know, the health of, uh, and, and the beneficial health outcomes of weight management and weight loss, we're not talking about the flip side of that, which is the benefit of preventing disordered eating in people as we're encouraging them to manage their weight. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this conversation highlights just why it's important to improve this discourse because the majority of coaches are working with athletes. Um, and as you say, they are the types of people who are predisposed to, to developing like pathological tendencies because of that kind of perfectionist um, personality type. I think it really is important that um, people are aware that there are other coaches out there. Um, and to be able to kind of look out for those warning signs within athletes and knowing when an approach like intuitive eating is an appropriate approach rather than you know turning your nose up at anything that isn't to do with macro tracking especially when you know pain is kind of glorified mm-hmm. isn't it mm-hmm. absolutely yes you got to suffer to win um, yeah. um on this topic because shannon just mentioned like when it's appropriate i do have a question from um on this topic from one of our flex success followers I can't pronounce this Instagram handle, so I'm just going to read the question. Intuitive versus mindful eating to maximize performance while maintaining weight. There you go. Misconception. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. See, and I think that's what it is. It's it's that, um, you know, so could you potentially utilize mindful eating as a strategy to um, control body weight or modify it in some way? Now, not to say, you know, and I, am careful to say, um, like intuitive eating, um, TM, you know, intuitive eating versus eating intuitively. Sometimes people will say that to mean like kind of knowing what they should eat or, um, mindful eating as sort of the program versus eating mindfully. Now I do know of people who don't use any sort of macro tracking whatsoever. And they basically look at their food sizes and their hunger levels and reduce those over time, reduce food size over time in, you know, reduce palatability, um, reduce uh, nutrient density of their foods, and then pay attention to hunger and satiety signals. Um, Potentially, could that happen? Sure. But if we're talking about, you know, to optimize performance, again, we're looking at two two different goalposts, really, you know, are we trying to facilitate you know, normal eating patterns. If a person has no, you know, Dean, if you feel like you never, you don't have any 
issues at all, like no stress about dieting and whatnot, then maybe that's not something that you really have to think about. So like an, an individual in your situation can just be like, I just want to track or not. It's fine either way. But if a person is starting to develop disordered eating tendencies, or are they already in it because intuitive eating has been used so effectively for individuals with binge eating disorder, then it might be that we put, you know, like that's goal, goal B, like, you know, optimize performance or weight management. Those things will happen later. But the whole purpose of, you know, establishing the skill set of mindfulness, not just within eating, but in life in general, or working through, uh, working with intuitive eating as a process of self-care, is that we're establishing new inner framework so that we can better manage our external environment. And that way, maybe going forward, a person can then say, I'm really well equipped to choose nutrients, intake processes um, that support my performance and weight management. And it's, I'm so well equipped that now my external environment doesn't even matter that much. It doesn't matter what types of foods I'm around or if I have social pressure or whatnot. Like I've done my internal work and now I can optimize for physique comp prep. And like you, you have really great internal framework then awesome. Like you don't really have to be too concerned about what's going on. But if all we're focused on is, you know, uh, oh, the external, like modifying food environment and things like that, or reducing food palatability, once those kind of training wheels have been taken off, if the person doesn't have that internal framework, they're going to be pretty much right back to where they were before. Yeah. How, how do I manage my environment? Yeah. So I would say that, you know, again, I just want to stress that those are not the tools for that job. Mm. You know, if we want to increase one rep max back squat, it's probably not going to be through like goblet squats. That's just, you know, that it's just like two different modalities. There is not going to get us to that, um, that, that goalpost. Yeah. Yeah. And your external environment is not something that you can always control and it may change over time. Yet your internal environment needs to be there. Like you need to have control over that for a range of different goals. So it's worth focusing on that first. And if you're already there, then like you say, you don't need to be going for these approaches and you can just work on your overarching goal, which may be, you know, performance or weight modification. But if your internal environment isn't there, then it's going to make everything else so much harder. So it's kind of, almost the quicker route is to work on that first so that you can go and pursue these other things. Shannon, I think you're such a shining example of that because um, for those who haven't listened to our previous podcast with Shannon, Shannon's a nomad who doesn't live anywhere. She moves <laughs> around, I don't know, probably like 10 different countries within a year. Would that be fair? Oh, I took 26 flights last year, so who knows? <laughs> oh my God. Um, and if Shannon didn't have that good internal environment set up, she would not be managing her weight or nutrition or, you know, she would not be managing that well. But Shannon, you're always maintaining, you know, um, a healthy physique, a healthy relationship with food. You never really seem to struggle in social environments. You eat for other reasons other than hunger because it enhances your social relationships with people because you want to try new foods. And none of that seems to get in the way of of your performance or physique goals. And I just think that's so awesome um, and just such a good example of someone that has that under control. Mm. I don't know anyone who moves around as much as you, by the way. (laughs) It's insane. But it is true. You never really ever have the language of like, oh my God, I'm going to be in this place and I'm going to let loose. Yeah. Or I can't can't wait to do this, you know, like, and it's never, it's like, 
I'm looking forward to trying new foods because that's going to be an interesting experience. It's never to try and fill an emotional void or mm. some form of, it's never even just like, a, I have a fear that I'm going to do this because I've always done it, therefore I'll do it this time too. So yeah. it's super interesting. I think, um, I think I'm in a lucky position where, I, again, like I've never really had the negative internal talk. So my ability to self-manage my diet on the back of also being educated on macro tracking and, and understanding my limitations and you know all of that makes it much, much easier for me to, try, I suppose, transition into that more of an informed approach. Um, but I can appreciate 100% that I think, should I not have been in that position, that without the internal self-talk and the internal re- like regulation of how I'm feeling, I don't think I could probably do what I currently do or even move back into tracking because I wouldn't have the, the necessary skills or understanding of what's going on. So, Can you talk to us about what you mean by moving into an informed approach? Oh uh, yeah. Like, so like, I that's how you eat now, right? Yeah. Like yeah. A, a lot of my clients, I suppose, track macros because they have very specific weight specific goals as well and body fat goals. So it's kind of necessary for, competition. for competitions. Yeah. Yep. Um, but a lot of the, like you, you uh, touched on this earlier too, Gabby is a lot of people struggle with is once they start tracking macros, they have no appreciation of what actual hunger is. They eat because the numbers say them say they should shit. Actually funny side story. I got salmonella poisoning in Thailand, right? I returned to Australia and being uh, the, the idiot that I am, tried to self-diagnose all of my gut issues for a while, tried to manipulate things. It took me about three months to go to the doctors. And he was just like, there's no way you've got typhoid fever. You've probably just got IBS. And I was like, nah, mate, I, this is something wrong for me. <laughs> and his question to me was, uh, do you not have, like, how's your hunger? Like, is that shut down? My, and I said to him, mate, I eat to numbers. If I'm full, I eat. If I'm not full, I eat. Like, if the number said to me, you have 300 grams of carbs to eat, should I sat in bed some nights like drinking one and a half liter shakes that I could barely get down my, you know, pretty much could have made me um, the, the poor goose where they throw food down their throat. <laughs> but over time, like obviously because of even some of those issues, I'm very, very aware and having the exposure to people like yourself and Shannon and all of our crew at Flex, like being a little bit more aware of the things that go on with people's mindsets around food is that mm-hmm. shifting people out of the macro tracking and into becoming aware of fullness is super, super important because man, that would be a scary uh, little venture. I think jumping from macro tracking straight into informed and, and informed for us is having the knowledge and understanding of like what's in food is super important. If you want to be able to manage weight in more of a, I suppose, conscious manner without it making, um, like, yeah, just being about the internal talk, I suppose, about emotion. That was a little bit tongue-tied, but... Yeah, well, Shannon um, wrote a book on behalf of Flex Success called Informed Eating, uh, and it's about life after dieting. So we know that uh, macro tracking can be a really helpful tool for some people in order to understand nutrition, understand their nutritional needs, and fit that within their preferences. But it's not practical for people to be counting their macros forever. It's not even necessary. And they can maintain their new body weight or new body composition without tracking. And like Dean said, that is a scary transition with lots of questions and pitfalls, which is where the book kind of fits in uh, to help people unpick this, the, the really complicated web mm. of that. I think it's, again, like the intuitive. It's just another tool, right? And so long as it's paired appropriately, like you can eat, eat intuitively if you understand what that means. And we're talking about now is this misconception of how it can be applied. Same with mindful, same with informed. So I think the biggest issue is the understanding of what the actual terminology is associated with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we release the book, Gabby, you went over it for us. Do you want to give us your kind of pithy conclusions of what you thought about informed eating. 
I think it's the, it's really addressing that gap between, you know, when people are trying to transition out of a diet and I think, you know, we can probably, I I hope that the industry sort of improves this too. You guys are really paving the way with that. You know, they get into this mindset of like, what now? I, I had all of these rigid rules that I was meant to follow and now I'm in this gray area. And, you know, we as humans, I think we really like the absolutes. We like black and white, like eat this much and just that much and eat this, these foods. And I've had so many people, um, you know, reach out to me and say, okay, I, you know, I stopped this diet and now like, what do I do now? I don't know how to regulate my food intake. I don't know what foods I should be choosing. I don't know how to go out with friends and just eat and then like, move on with the rest of my day. How do I know how many macros are in that meal? And if I don't know that, then I don't know what to do with the rest of my meals. Throw the whole day out. It's all a waste. Yeah. Um, you know, so they have a difficult time navigating that gray area and that level of flexibility. And aptly named, you know, flex success, you guys are helping them make that transition and have a life that answers that question. What now? Well, now you go ahead and and, and live a full abundant life where food is <laughs> enjoyable and it's nourishing, but it's not at the forefront of your mind and that you can fit all foods in and you can use your hunger and satiety signals to determine how much you might want to have and that you've accumulated a lot of sort of nutritional IQ up to this point. So, you know, that's one thing that I will say is, you know, beneficial to a lot of people who may have been through dieting cycles that they probably know more than they realize about, you know, just the general contents of food, like what constitutes carbohydrates versus lean proteins versus fats and, you know, making choices appropriately, you know, based on their goals. Hmm, for yeah. sure. As I was um, writing the book, I actually spoke to a wonderful woman called Stephanie Roberts, who lost like a significant amount of weight. And I asked her what some of the things that she struggled with, like during the maintenance phase, like what did she find most difficult about maintaining her weight loss? And one of the things that she said was not having any like goals to work towards Mm -hmm. and not having any parameters to measure success or whether she's doing the right thing. And that was what encouraged me to include like the goal setting chapter to remind people that, you know, even if your, your weight loss journey is over and you've achieved what you set out to achieve, there are now other things that you can work on in your life. You know, there's more to life than just trying to manipulate your weight. How about you go and make progress in these other things? It's all about um, kind of realizing what is important to you and what else you have going on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I find if people focus far too much on how their body looks, it can create more body dissatisfaction than if we didn't focus on it at all. Um, Mm -hmm. Gabby, I'm not sure if you had a similar experience, but I feel like I was relatively happy with my body before I started comp prep. And that's like one of the reasons as well as social pressure, why I started. I'm like, I look pretty good. I can get on stage. (laughs) And then (laughs) the leaner I got, the more critical I was of my body. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, cool. I, you might have like veins all up my arms, like roadmaps, but look at this tiny little bit of fat that I can pinch on my stomach. I'm disgusting. I'm going to get up there and everyone's going to laugh at me. And I would never think that before I started the prep when I was much, um, I don't want to say chubby, when my body fat percentage was much healthier perhaps. Um, So body dissatisfaction is definitely, or can definitely increase as people improve their body composition. 
I think it's to do with um, a lot of self-monitoring as well because you're paying more attention to how you look. I think that's why it's important to discuss this, you know, when we're working with people because we do ask for progress pictures, we ask for scale weight, we ask for measurements and things like that. And the more attention that people are paying to all these things, even if they're all moving in the right direction, they may, like you say, become more dissatisfied because purely because they're just overthinking things and it's become a much larger um, part of their life so that kind of preoccupation with your appearance is something that we need to bear in mind when we're going about you know weight loss and weight management and things like that yeah Yeah. and this is a big reason why people are so hesitant to uh invest in intuitive eating and mindful eating because they are at such high levels of body dissatisfaction and they quite often are sort of conditionally accepting of themselves. So once I look this way or once I reach this weight, then I'll be happy with my body. And they want to just, it's like, you know, and I have said this before, you don't have to love what yourself and love your body. I mean, if you go from a place of hate you know some people really do they they have this these feelings of abhorrence for for how they look and you know just themselves and very low self-worth to to spout this message of like self-love that seems very unrealistic and we have to make these beliefs we have realistic um so the transition might not be from i'm really unhappy and i hate this to i love myself but at least trying to work with them to get to a place of appreciation or just recognition for the importance of the various parts of their bodies Mm. because you know when they're because the asking someone you know that would probably benefit from from using mindful eating or intuitive eating and really just taking a break from trying to diet you know or are you comfortable sort of putting weight loss on the back burner if they are still in a place where they're really, really uncomfortable and really dislike their body, it's going to be very difficult for them to take that step. Yes, I can wait on the weight loss. Quite often they're like, no, I need to lose the weight first and then I can use intuitive eating. And it's like, oh, because I think a lot of people are still using intuitive eating as a tool. It's just to them, it's just a way, you know, oh, it's a way to approach meals. But intuitive eating, as I mentioned, is a whole self-care framework that really focuses on self-acceptance and respecting yourself and your body, you know, being as kind and respectful to yourself as you would be to another person. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of merit to um, body image flexibility. So kind of accepting yourself, even if you don't like how you look, it doesn't affect your mood um, per se. I think the reason that that's quite important because body image is like a multifaceted construct. So you've got these cognitive components and how we feel about ourselves changes, even if we don't physically change. It's not about how you look, it's about how you feel about how you look, mm-hmm. right? And there's a difference there. And some days you may wake up feeling like 10 out of 10, like, yeah, great today, cool. And then other days you may wake up feeling gross. And mm-hmm. the difference is not letting the, that affect you regardless yeah. yeah. Again, that just comes, I think, back down to this conscious awareness of what's going on. I think the biggest issue with sort of, I suppose, like um, uh, positioning all of these strategies of managing nutrition and health and internal health and all that is that people still want to be a part of a camp. Mm-hmm. And, and with that mentality, the stuff that's not as sexy is hard to sell. Do you mean like I'm a clean eater, I follow keto? Is that what you mean? Or like also like, you know, the anti-diet campaign may say that then all, all weight loss is bad, you know, yeah, and right. then the dieting people are like, well, if you don't lose weight, you're bad. 
And like yeah. everybody wants mm-hmm. to position themselves with this very, I suppose, like, yeah, dichotomous thought process around what is mm-hmm. success in regards to managing health. And I think it's probably because a lot of people don't really appreciate the multifaceted approach of health. Mm. And it's not synonymous with, so if we look at just weight loss, just, okay, if we can get a person to lose weight without engaging in any of the healthy behaviors, we just give them liposuction. (laughs) We're not going to see the same. Yes, exactly. You don't see the same, um, you know, cardiometabolic factor improvements and that's weight loss. And so, and I think a lot of this comes down to maybe misinterpretations or like misunderstandings of what the statistics actually show. Does, a, does an energy deficit not work? Of course an energy deficit works. But when we talk about a diet, a diet is not necessarily the same thing as an energy deficit. A diet may or may not result in an energy deficit. And an energy deficit may occur as a side effect of engaging in health-seeking behaviors without intentionally focusing on weight loss as a goal. And so when we talk about, you know, being weight neutral, weight neutral is not anti-weight loss. <laughs> it's neutral. It's, yes, it's, it's weight neutral. It's just that weight loss is not the prescription. So something that I think people get confused about, and it, it, it fires people up, when we say, you know, diets don't work, and you know, weight losses is ineffective. Well, when we look at actual statistical outcomes, so differences in the effects of weight neutral versus weight loss approaches, and we look long-term, past six or nine months, if we look out to a year or longer, both approaches result in very minimal weight loss. Whether you tell a person you need to lose weight and you know, these are the approaches you're gonna do, versus let's not worry about your weight, these are the approaches. The outcome is the same. The problem I think really arises is when we use weight loss as that's your prescription. Weight loss is your prescription with no focus on the actual behaviors that we might engage in to reach that outcome of weight loss. Oh, you need to lose 20 pounds. That's like saying, okay, well, you need to increase the amount of money in your savings account. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, how do you want me to do that? Like sell drugs? I mean, is that really, that's probably going to be the fastest way, right? (laughs) That sounds like a good idea. And so long-term, yes, when we look at weight neutral versus weight loss interventions, equally effective slash ineffective, depending on how you rate, you know, a very small amount of weight change. But what really makes a difference, I think, longer term is when we're focusing on the health-seeking behaviors. And that's the other big misconception. When people learn about haze, about health at every size, they think it's healthy at every size. That's not what they're saying. They're saying that people of every size can engage in health-seeking behaviors and that it's not helpful to a person to say, you need to lose 30 pounds. Mm-hmm. It, they might already know that, but it's helpful to help them find ways to engage in health-seeking behaviors that might involve lifestyle factors like physical activity, stress management, and managing you know, potentially emotional eating and nutrition. So all of those together, will weight loss occur? Maybe or maybe not, but that's not the focus. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think... Sorry, Well, and some of these weight neutral approaches like really raised the important point that weight loss, as you say, is not a prescription and it also increases like the shame and stigma around being overweight or having obesity. And then that internalization of that shame and stigma precludes the engagement in healthier behaviors. So you see like increased um, overeating and like a lower motivate 
patient to exercise and things like that. So we're not actually helping anyone by making them feel crap about where they are. Mm, absolutely. Most of our clients come to us because they want to lose weight or they want to improve their body composition somehow, which is an okay goal. Uh, but it's, we know as coaches that when they, you know, check in with their weight or whatever, we don't focus on that. Even if they make a weight loss target, we don't focus on that. What we ask is, did you consume, you know, fruits and vegetables throughout the day? How was your sleep? How did you, you know, how did you feel about your exercise? We ask all of these questions that I think are frustrating to some clients because they don't understand so much why we're asking them these questions. And it is because we're trying to help them set up healthy behaviors so that long-term they can manage their weight without actually thinking about their weight. But I can totally see how someone says, hey, I'm coming to you because I want to lose 10 kilos. And I'm like, cool, how did you sleep last night? They're like, what the fuck does that have to do with me? You know, (laughs) I think when we can explain to clients why all of these like better or healthier behaviors are so important, then they can start to put their focus on other things other than the scales. Because sometimes a client does all the things correctly, but the scales don't show any improvement. And that might be because of hormonal fluctuations. Maybe they didn't poop that morning or whatever it is, like they're holding more water, like blah, 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 blah. But that doesn't mean that the things that they did were wrong. Mm. Not at all. It means we need to focus less on the scales because eventually if we're doing the right things, that will fall in line. But that's not the focus. And this is like a dichotomy that I struggle with because everyone wants to lose weight. And I'm like, I really don't care what anyone looks like. I just want people to be happy. But knowing that if you're trying to promote these things, like you need to sell that you can help someone achieve what they're looking to achieve. And they may think that they want to lose weight. And obviously that usually is part of the process, but there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes that people don't expect for it to happen. So something that I'm very careful about, for example, is like praising weight loss. If someone's you know, the scales move down, I'll praise that, but then I'll always link it back to the behaviors. Like, oh, you should it, you know, a huge change on the scale this week. It's because you've been so um, diligent with this, this, and this, or you're, you've clearly prioritized this, you're engaging in self-care. You know, I always bring it back to that. And then yeah. it makes them feel good about themselves alongside the weight loss. Yeah. Yeah, it's because you're also placing more value on other aspects of their journey. Because the problem is if you place all of the value on the scale, the moment the scale doesn't give them the return they want that week, whoa, you're in trouble, you know? And it's the yeah. same with everything else. It's like if I want to earn $100,000 a year, am I, am I unsatisfied and unhappy until I earn, like am I at 99000 am I still unhappy? Like that one extra thousand is going to make a difference? Or are there other aspects of my life that also provide me value so that that 1,000 that I'm missing out on isn't such a uh, crux to my happiness? Yeah. Hey, can I just take this back to something Gabby said just before? You mentioned, hey, standing for health at every size. And that doesn't mean that you can be healthy at any size, but rather you can engage in health-seeking behaviors at any size. So um, I'm a supporter of haze and, you know, I think body positivity, that whole movement is so empowering, not just for women, but for men as well. But one problem that I find is I have a very close friend who is a huge advocate of haze and she doesn't believe that body weight affects your health in any way. Um, and she was like, you know, Hey, standing for health at any size. I'm like, eh, not really kind of missing that. And then, so my qualm with it. I mean, like I'm also an advocate of education and 
um, you know, understanding nutrition, but I also see that there's pitfalls within those things. So just like I'm an advocate for haze, the pitfall that I find there is that people think now it means it doesn't matter what size I am, I can be healthy. And I spoke uh, last year, 2019, at the Strong Woman Project, and I um, did a lecture on my experience with orthorexia and binge eating. And I found that a lot of the rhetoric there was around kind of almost celebrating obesity, if I can, mm-hmm. if I can go that far. And that really worried me because um, it doesn't matter how you look again, but one of the biggest causes of death is obesity related disease. And I see people really harming themselves by kind of celebrating obesity. I think we can celebrate our bodies while engaging in better behaviors. But I I was just concerned that people walked away thinking it doesn't matter that I'm obese. I'm going to keep going. Do you see that in your circle? Um, I think because, so I have like, I feel like I'm in the middle now. So I've got like so many people that are like anti-diet and so many people that are, I don't know, I don't want to say pro-diet, but you know what I mean? So um, I think there, I I always like to try and fall back on the data and like, what can I find that's in support or what can I find that adds more nuance and detail? So it does look like about 30% of individuals with obesity are considered to be metabolically healthy. And so they don't metabolically look any different from a person of normal weight, Mm -hmm. but they are at about 80% increased risk of developing one of the obesity related comorbidities. And that over time, about half of individuals who are metabolically healthy with obesity uh, will tend to lose that metabolic health. So if we want to look at it as a potential, you know, risk factor, we can just use that fact not to stigmatize, but just to educate, not to say that this is going to be you, you need to do something about it, but just to say, here's the data and we don't have to, we still don't have to make it about reducing weight because again, weight neutral versus weight loss focused approaches, very similar outcomes. Instead, we can make it about it celebrating our bodies and respecting our bodies through the behaviors that promote health, which would be engaging in physical activity and, you know, most of the time choosing foods that are nutrient dense and, you know, even eating in response mostly to physiological hunger and then stopping when we feel uh, that we're satisfied. So those things, you know, even if it's, and it doesn't even have to be about reducing body weight again. I mean, just maintaining body weight. Most people are gaining over time, but still we don't have to have that to be, you know, a, a focus. But I think, you know, being realistic that yes, there are individuals who have obesity and are metabolically healthy. That is absolutely a fact based on evidence that we have really collected. So, you know, it's not that people are just saying like, oh, this is, you know, something that I want to believe is true. So I think it's important to validate that. And then just using the facts that we have to help educate people and, um, you know, still realizing that at the end of the day, it is their choice. And, Mm. um, you know, I'm kind of, I try not to like change people's minds, I guess. Like I want to improve the dialogue, but at the same time, you know, people will, probably stay in their camps and maybe I'll just like piss everybody off on both sides and you know that could happen too um but yeah so that's kind of how I see it that you know I just have the data there I use that to inform people 
and um, still just, you know, let them make the decisions that they're going to make based on that information. The thing is as well, I think if people are looking at the Hayes movement and saying, I'm absolutely fine how I am, then they probably misinterpreted the whole point is to engage in healthier behaviors. So if you're um, overweight or have obesity and you're not, you know, engaging in physical activity or you are experiencing a loss of control over your eating and you're not engage like putting self-care at the forefront of your behaviors then you're not actually taking the message that Hayes is trying to deliver mm. um, so that's kind of the, the difference there that as you say some people will probably read into it and see what they want to see but at the yeah. core of it it's about engaging in healthier behaviors yeah. and if you're currently not doing those things then it may or may not lead to weight loss over time um, it's also raising the importance of things like you know living a sedentary lifestyle is unhealthy like and that, that we have health outcomes that are separate from physical activity levels. So you could be physically active and still be sedentary and you are at risk. So, and that could be someone who looks to be a, a normal weight, like whatever that means. Yeah. You can't really see health. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I guess I was, yeah, just concerned that people walked away reading into it, you know, like reading things that they shouldn't have read and not engaging in healthier behaviors because of, you know, body positivity says like, it's totally fine to be anything, which it is. Um, but I just wondered if people were taking that as a license not to change any behaviors at all. Right. And I'm sure some people probably could, you know, but um, I think that Shannon made such a great point that, you know, part of the, like a, the big part of that message is, you know, we're talking about weight inclusivity and health seeking behaviors um, and, you know, removing weight stigma and things like that. And that goes to, you know, sort of the medical community to prevent um, missed diagnoses because we assume, oh, your problems are because of your weight and it's actually something else that's much more serious, but they're misdiagnosed or just told, oh, you have to lose weight and that's supposed to improve, you know, their health outcomes. But if a person is taking care and respecting themselves and their bodies by engaging in these health seeking behaviors, then it may be that those are the individuals who are in larger bodies, but still metabolically healthy. And if it is about health, then we have to say truly, then if you've maintained metabolic health this whole time, even if you're in a larger body, like the, then that doesn't matter. You're metabolically healthy, then totally. go do your thing, you know? Would an example of misdiagnosis be someone that walks into a doctor's surgery who has anorexia and their doctor would say to them, your health issues are because you're so underweight, you need to gain weight. But you're saying, no, actually the issues are psychological and with their relationship with their body and with their relationship with their food. So that would be the misdiagnosis. Uh, there was one recently with someone who was overweight or obese um, who went to the doctors, they actually had a tumour. And the doctor misdiagnosed because they were overweight and that was their issue. Because of the stigmatism associated with body fatness or a larger individual, somebody just essentially says, hey, this is a larger individual. You have all of the problems because of the size of you, as opposed yes. to actually looking for a legitimate diagnosis. Yeah. But yeah. it could happen with an individual who's underweight too. They could go in and the doctor says, oh, well, I mean, I'm not really concerned about your weight, but the person is, you know, underweight, perhaps their BMI is, you know, less than 18.5 because there does seem to be, we see increased risk at extreme levels of underweight as well as uh, levels of obesity. It seems like individuals based on BMI, which obviously has its own flaws, but within normal weight, even to overweight um, seem to be 
in, in sort of the best place in terms of, you know, disease risk. So it could certainly be that, you know, that's sort of the other side of weight stigma that people don't talk about so much. We talk a lot about individuals in larger bodies, but individuals in smaller bodies can also experience it. You know, people say like, oh, you, you should eat a hamburger or something or like, oh, you look, or, you know, that, that feeds into it as well. Oh, you look so great. What have you been doing lately? And the person's like, well, I've been very ill. I've lost a lot of weight, but not because I want to, or, you know, I had a death in the family or something. So weight stigma can really apply to any body weight. And I think it's important also that we realize that we're judged so much on our external appearance that people will gauge, you know, our everything, intelligence, successfulness, effort based on external appearance. So when we talk about weight stigma, absolutely, it manifests in different ways, depending on, you know, sort of the body size that we're looking at. Um, but both of those, in my opinion, would be examples of weight stigma. Yeah, mm. yeah, definitely effort. You, you can't see effort for sure because Mr. Dean McKillop over here, he, you know, he trains. He trains pretty hard. You're about to say that well. I put in no effort to look the way. No, I'm right. definitely not saying you put in <laughs> no effort. But I'm saying the level of effort that Dean puts in to look pretty incredible, if I do say so myself. Um, and I have clients that try so hard, and they center their whole lives around trying to look better, and they you know, they never get compliments about their body or no one asks them, oh, wow, are you doing a bodybuilding competition? So their level of effort does not align with mm. how they look at all. So we certainly can't judge people. It's because their mum or their dad had sex with the wrong person. Is <laughs> <laughs> that another way of saying genetics? My old man picked a good lady or my lady picked a good man. I'm not <laughs> sure which one it is, but um, man, but it even happens even in, uh, let's quote unquote, call it my world, where there's an acceptability around judging my physique. That's the body because I'm situated somewhere in the middle, right? Like I have a certain amount of muscle mass. I'm not carrying a certain amount of body fat mass. And people are like, oh, you're disgusting. Like, well, hang on a minute. Are you saying that like, people who don't lift think you're disgusting because you're well, more muscular? It's, it seems to be that the, the crew within, I suppose, like that hyper fitness industry are okay to be judged on their look because it's assumed that they don't have problems because the external makes it seem as if the internal is also healthy. Right. You know, even the words or terminology, you must be, you look so fit. Well, actually, no, I'm probably not fit at all. You know, I look <laughs> like I'm on the front of a magazine, but I'm cardiorespiratually very unfit. So this, oh, yeah. people really have a disconnect between what even health looks like, which is probably the mm -hmm. biggest issue here. Yeah. 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 I don't get as many comments as I used to probably because, you know, of the circle that I hang out in, but as a female, as a male with muscle, I think it's expected, like it's masculine, but a female with muscle is also called masculine and I don't really appreciate it. And uh, I've had plenty of comments before, like, ew, that's disgusting. Like, did I ask you for your opinion of what you think of my body? But like, it, it wouldn't be acceptable for someone to say, ew, at someone that's overweight because we see that as fat shaming. But somehow people think it's okay, um, including my mom, unfortunately, to give opinions on, you know, that's gross, that's manly, that's really yuck. Mm -hmm. And why is it acceptable to say those negative things about my body? Um, when clearly this isn't an accident. I didn't fall onto the leg press and do a thousand reps in a year. Like that wasn't an accident. Like this is on purpose. I want, you know, I enjoy engaging in these behaviors and this is the result and it's just not nice. Um, so I think we should stop talking about people's bodies so much on in either direction of the scale. Yes. Yeah. Mm. The important thing here is that the focus on the external doesn't actually help at all realistically. No. And this is across all, all facets of body, yeah. uh, body shapes and sizes. 
Yes, exactly. That's why I'm trying to, like, I want, I think that's what we're missing is like, even when people argue about like, oh, intuitive eating versus whatever, like it's still because it's like, oh, intuitive eating won't help me or my clients get to their optimal body weight. Like, can we pause for a second and look at what we're arguing about here? Like your client has been dieting, yo-yo dieting for the past eight years. They hate their body. They're miserable. They don't know how to function outside of macros. If that doesn't look like an issue that we might want to address, I think that that's pointing to something really wrong with the industry. That like our big point of contention is that, oh, this can't be used for weight management. Um, are there not other things? Like, so sometimes when people are like, oh, what do I do now? I had one client or uh, one person who reached out to me on Instagram who had developed a binge eating disorder, um, adopted the principles of intuitive eating and has been binge free and, you know, just living life for, for a few months. And she was like, what now? I mean, what do I... It, what do I do now that I'm not dieting all the time? Like dieting has given me so much purpose and it's been something I've expended so much energy on. And I was like, well, what do you want to do now that you have all of this extra time and energy and, and maybe even money? Do you want to travel? Do you want to learn a new language? Do you want to write a book? Literally you can do anything that you want. Like you don't have to be in a smaller body. That's not a thing that you have to do. Like you can just engage in all these health seeking behaviors and go to your doctor and make sure you're metabolically healthy and then just exist in that body. Like that's revolutionary to people. Mm. I think the biggest thing that you used, I don't know if it was her terminology or yours, but she said like, what purpose do I have anymore? As opposed to just being a recognition of a focus. I think that's mm. like yeah. very different language, right? Your purpose isn't weight loss. Yeah. It was right. just a that's focus. Like, yes. And it was like, I don't know if that was like, you know, her purpose purpose, mm. but she was just like, can I ever go on a diet again? And I was like, well, you know, you, could potentially lose body weight if you wanted to be in a smaller body, but why? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that as a goal, but like, do you have a reason to do that? It, you know, I mean, if, are you very unsatisfied with the way that your body looks right now? Or when I'm working with clients who are kind of going through this, this transition and they're like, well, I kind of want to lose weight, but I'm so enjoying the process of, you know, I'm not counting things. I'm feeling very satisfied with my food. I don't have cravings anymore. I have tons more energy, tons more focus. I'm more relaxed. My boyfriend and I get to have more fun. Like all of these things. I'm like, that's awesome. Hmm. Okay. Well, you know, maybe we haven't looked at your weight change, but like all of those other things, like, would you rather have lost two pounds or have all of that? Not to say that at some point we can't do that simultaneously, but I think it's just like when we talk about like, can I, you know, mass or can I like gain muscle mass while I'm cutting a little bit? Yeah. But like, it's probably more efficient to just focus on one and then focus on the other. Same thing with this. Like, yeah. why don't we just focus on this for right now? Like this is serving a very important purpose and it's okay that it's not going to be about weight management or optimal performance. So mm. maybe if we can just like stop arguing about that part <laughs> and realize that like everyone has a right to be able to do this. And I don't think that coaches should be dissuading people who want to engage in that behavior. Cause that's unfortunately what I've seen that like, I don't think people should be using this because of X, Y, and Z or like one classic misconception. If you've had an eating disorder, you shouldn't be doing intuitive eating. It's the opposite. Oh. <laughs> what are you doing? Yes. yes. And I'm like, there's a whole book. You could read a whole book about it. 
<laughs> you know? Wow. Um, and how the body supports the role of intuitive eating in attenuating like these pathological behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. yes. I was just going to say on the flip side, that's like um, people who are in support of, you know, intuitive eating saying you should never go on a diet as well, um, which is, you know, my friend that is a huge Hayes supporter. She's, you know, there's, there's a spectrum. And I think if anyone has all the information, you kind of sit somewhere in the middle. You're like, oh yeah, you, I can see a place for this and a place for that. But there's, you know, the, the coaches that say you should never do informed eating. And then there's the, sorry, not informed eating, um, intuitive eating. And then there's the extreme intuitive eaters who said all diets are bad and they all cause eating disorders, which is also not the case. We need the right tool for the right job and to know when, uh, what is appropriate at what time. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. It's almost like education as a whole, no matter what domain you're in, almost lends you to be a little bit left centrist, right? <laughs> I guess so. Like, it seems to be the case, like if you look at even at all of it, but in this instance, like the education around all of this in both now understanding all the different types of dieting and then also understanding the physiological side of dieting is you kind of sit somewhere central and then you have the opportunity to, to shoot the arms out on either side to dial one side up or dial the other side. The down. annoying it depends answer. Yeah, but it yes. depends always has to come with the follow up. <laughs> That's true. Yes. Um, exactly. Well, thank you ladies for the the great discussion today. And I hope that we've opened the minds and ears of some listeners who are looking for a different way of doing things or just trying to understand the, the pros and cons of different approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, do we, are we happy to, to move on to some funnies or would you like to give some wrap up summaries of anything? Um, just to wrap up then key points, physical appearance doesn't equal physical health. We can't see health, health uh, or weight loss is not a behavior um, and that you can engage in healthier behaviors without making weight loss the primary focus. And as you say, everything has a place. It's about knowing what's appropriate for who and for what, when. Mm-hmm. Yes. Love it. And we absolutely need to address internal environment so that we can function regardless of changes in our external environment, because we can't control external environment. We can't even really control all of their outcomes, but we can be in charge of our responses to those things. Mm. And is that something that you help people do through your coaching, Gabby? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. This is something I especially focus on with my vitamin PhD nutrition coaching. So that's telehealth. And I find that it's very effective sort of, I say face to face, but when we have video chats and things like that, but of course, these are things that I um, include in that as well as my RP one-on-one coaching too. Mm -hmm. Uh Great. Well, uh, at the end, we'll get you to give your Instagram handle and maybe your email or how people can, can reach out to you. And um, if I could add one, I think the biggest thing for me here, and this is in all of it, is uh, being present in your decision making. Mm. I think the more you can be consciously present in that, the far easier it becomes to make really good informed choices, whether they be for whatever goal you have. Mm -hmm. Mm. Cool. And then I would add to do things intentionally, whether that's through mindful eating or macro tracking or whatever suits you at this point in time, have an intention and, and use that. Know the why behind what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Also, I do try hard, so leave me alone. You do not try hard. <laughs> <laughs> At his fattest, I, he has a six I try moderately hard. <laughs> Nick, cut but, it. but again, too, though, like just even on that, like my moderate effort now is built on the back end of, you know, 20 years of like really intense effort. And it's the same in reverse. Yeah, because Dean was a child athlete. So oh, that sounds bad. Now he was, though. So now his moderate effort is probably like the same level as someone's intense effort because, you know, he's, he's comparing it against being a, mm. a child athlete. Yeah. Now, all right. 
shoot, Dean. We uh, will go. We'll go. Gabby first, Shannon second, because you both got to answer all of these, and then I'll jump off and, and grab our shitty choices game, of course, as well. Okay. Um, now, first question is: When you have thirty minutes of free time, how do you spend at that time? I already know the answer to both of these girls. <laughs> you big nerd! Oh my gosh, I haven't. I can't remember the last time I had thirty minutes of free time. <laughs> I know. I'm like. At the end of the day, when I feel like it's free time, I'm like, okay, I've got to do some dishes and cook a little bit. Um, and sometimes I'll read, um, but I do make time to journal and meditate every day. So I would say one of my clients calls this sigh time. Like at the end of the day, you just sit down and you're like, <sighs> um, but I like to sometimes dabble in a little bit of Netflix. I've been watching you lately, which is really interesting. And then um, a night on earth, which is really mm -hmm. cool. If you like, like animal documentary type things. Cool. Love it. Do you watch Brooklyn nine, nine, if you're a Netflix -er? No, I, th those are literally like the only two shows that I'm, that I watch right now. I highly recommend sometimes I'll watch like, okay. Okay. If I, I sometimes watch like, like killer TV shows, like about, you know, actual people who murdered people. Mm -hmm. but, I love um, that. I, yeah, so I'm also, like, I'm not as nomadic as Shannon, but I'm fairly nomadic, and I'm about to go on a trip for, like, many months, and it makes me really anxious to watch those shows, because I'm, like, I'm traveling alone. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I'm like, so I, I, have, I have pepper spray, and I have a taser and stuff like that. Um, Actually? Uh, yes. I don't even have any of that. Yes, I know, Shannon, like, Shannon yeah. carries nothing except her, her, just her will and her fists. <laughs> no, it's, it's just her, like... Her, I suppose, like she thinks that the world is a good place. Yeah, I'm she hasn't watched Pastel. Also, I went. On, I did a road trip with um, two of my girlfriends. I went from uh, I landed in Darwin and we drove to Broome. And on the first night of our trip, we watched. Um, what's that guy? Uh, Creek. Yeah, Wolf Creek. Wolf Creek. It's about this guy. Have you have you heard of it, Gabby? I feel like this sounds familiar to me. Right. So it's just about this guy that lives in the outback and he preys on female travelers and he like murders them and rapes them and stuff. So we watched this on the first night of our road trip. It scared the shit out of me because I like get scared at the Halloween episode of the Simpsons and my other girlfriends were just laughing, but it wasn't funny. But man, <laughs> this is three girls in a car driving across the outback of Australia one night they realized that they required, what did you need, gas? Oh, yeah, we needed to cook our dinner and our gas tank for our little, like, barbecue thing was out. Yeah, now the problem with a, a car is that you have to unpack it all, right, to set up the gas for the barbecue and the tables and the chairs and put away the bed and so on. And they'd done all that before they realized they had no gas. And it was, I'm going to say, I wasn't there, but I'm, so I'm just recalling information of the story that I've heard. So it's at, you know the time where the sun's starting to go down, but it's not quite down. And they didn't want to pack the tables back up. So Liz over here in an area where a mobile phone does not work, decided that she would sit on the side of the road and man the, the materials that they pulled out of the car, <laughs> while the other two girls just made a trek back into nowhere to try and find petrol to get gas. And her words were, please come back before it's dark. I'm scared of the dark, by the way. Is there been no, no <laughs> chance whatsoever to even call anybody. <laughs> no pepper spray and definitely no taser. So oh. she lived to find another. That would be you, Shannon, too. Yeah, I just feel like it yeah. was it was a very rapey situation that I thankfully stepped out of mm. <laughs> unraped. Um, 
Now, Shannon and I went on a hike, and when we got, we like Ubered up there, and then at the top, <laughs> our phones didn't work. And so we had to walk down to this narrow mountain highway. There's like this much space on the side of the road, and the cars are just zooming past, and we're just. Oh out. my we're God. All the roads are like that in Thailand. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's just oh. like Thailand or being in Amsterdam or wherever else you could probably think. Mm-hmm. Far out. All right, Shannon, how would you spend 30 minutes of your free time? Um, read. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've got a, um, whether it's like a book or just studies or whatever, I have a, a spreadsheet of all the studies that I don't have time for that I just like, oh, this would be interesting. I'll come back to this when I'm, you know, got spare time. And it's like this long, kind of like what Greg Nuggles does. <laughs> and people are like, do I have to read all of these? I'm like, oh. Um, so either that or at the moment, probably Duolingo. Oh, cool. Yeah. Mm. I laid on the couch for about an hour last night while Liz slept and went through some Spanish classes. On Duolingo. Duolingo. It's good fun. Yeah, it's an app for language for listeners that don't know what that is. Dean and I are going to Spain and we're learning Spanish. We're getting a head start before our TAFE class starts. Well, Liz already has a head start. She's just going to better spell her mother. Yes. <laughs> well, Shannon, you're going to have to be the, you're going to have to help me then when we go to Madrid. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> no promises. <laughs> Give me that. Otherwise, I'll tase you. <laughs> uh, question number two. Uh, this would be an interesting one. If you could run any scientific experiment and ethics and money were n- of no concern, what experiment would you run? Oh, ethics. Oh, I still, ethics would still be a concern for me. But yeah, I don't um, think I could scrap that. I would love to yeah. see intuitive eating studies in athletes because I've only seen yes. one in retired collegiate athletes, but ones that are currently um, engaging in athletic pursuits. That would be something I'd like okay. to see. Mm-hmm. I think I would want to, um, okay, so aside from like the gut microbiome and being able to actually like go in and sample from mucosal sites, like giving people a bunch of colonoscopies and things like that. Um, I think it would be really interesting to replicate some of the overfeeding, so like the food hyperpalatability studies, but like in people who are mindful eaters. So, mm-hmm. you know, so if, if we get, cause that's one of the things like, oh, you have to be very careful with your food choice because some of them are easy to overeat because we can replicate that in studies. But are those people just in an empty room and it's like, here's all this tasty food. You have nothing else to do for the next couple hours. What are you going to do versus giving it to a person who is a practiced, you know, mindful eater and telling them eat until you're satisfied. Um, I think you would probably see two different outcomes there. Hmm. Oh. Okay. I like it. One. I like it. Certainly no uh, non-ethical study like Lyle McDonald talked about. <laughs> oh my God. On the issues of round table. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard this one, Gabby, but this is worth sharing as well. I think he said it was in the thirties. So 19, no, or even maybe in the eighteens. I can't remember, but super, super early. And when homosexuality was not allowed in the army and in order for them to determine whether or not you had a higher likelihood of being a homosexual, they did a study on the gag reflex <laughs> and essentially try to say that if you had no gag reflex, you were definitely a homosexual. <laughs> wow. Wow. Maybe they just went to the dentist a lot. It is outrageous. Could you imagine? Science. Jesus. Isn't that great? Oh, man. Uh, science and politics. I'm glad they've both come a long way. Yes. Yeah. Keep going. I'm going to grab a shitty choice. All right. All right. So now we're going to get our, our card game out and ask you guys a would you rather. Woo-hoo. It's going to be excellent. But uh, sometimes we've pulled out a would you rather and they've been really boring questions. So I'm allowing myself a second card draw. Card draw. Here we go. <laughs> All right. Shannon, we'll ask you first. Mm, yeah. 
Would you rather be balding? No. But no. Okay. There we go. <laughs> Would you rather find out your significant other is cheating on you, or is secretly gay and not attracted to you at all? Ooh. Ooh. Cheating. <laughs> Me too. Probably. Then just get rid of him. Move on. <laughs> I'd go the other one. Would you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would cheating too. is no fun. It's their shitty, their shitty choices. Uh, whereas if they were secretly, yeah, I'd be like, oh, yeah. damn, man. Like, I wish you'd come out earlier and told everybody and celebrate. Yeah, because then you could still be friends with that person. Like, yeah, it would yeah be that's true. To, you know, it would be painful to lose that, that relationship, but you could be like, I'm here to support you and, you know, like, just be happy for them. There's that, that being happy for your partner's happiness with another person is called compersion for anyone who doesn't know that. Compersion. Mm-hmm. God, that would be difficult though. You'd be best friends, not just friends. So let's be honest. Yeah. I'd be BFFs. I'd be okay. <laughs> you gay BFF. <laughs> what are they called? I think they call you'd be a beard if you're a female. Beard. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is the lamest card ever. No, I'm not asking that yeah. one. All right. Gabby. So glad we have this second card draw. Mm-hmm. Would you rather lose your phone? Oh, no, that's a shit one too. No, sorry. Next Third card. card. <laughs> Would you rather be forced to wear wet socks for the rest of your life or only be allowed to wash your hair once a year? Ooh. Oh, that is awful. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, okay, I feel like with wet socks, you would end up with, like, trench foot and it would be, yeah, it would be so funky. I feel like, hmm. I'm going to have... Would I you even have, have feet at the end of the year? Right, That's exactly. my question. Like you, yeah. So I would, I guess hair, because I would just like shave my head. I'm going to assume that that's... Nope, not allowed to do that. <laughs> no, this is a loophole. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, see, the long... So I, I did a stint um, working with the Boy Scouts. I was a climbing instructor when I was like 19, and I would live on in the camp for the whole week and then like go drive back to my house for like one day. And I w- wasn't able to wash my hair for like the entire week because I was just living next to a stream. So I would like rinse it a little bit. But after like two weeks, I just cut it all off because it was awful. But um, from a week? The longest. The two yeah. weeks. That's great. No, at the end of two weeks, I cut it all off. But yeah, a whole week without being able to wash my hair two times in a row, I was like, this is not. Well, you've just chosen to live with that. Wow. So I think just yeah. to, is this a water wash that you're talking about? Are you like a shampoo and condition wash on the rig? Um, I, well, right now, you mean, or then? Well, now, I guess, because that would be your normal. Right. Yeah. No, now I do. I shampoo and conditioner. Yeah. Mm. Like regularly. I like to wash every day. Sometimes I do co-washing. You, know, you just wash with a conditioner. Um, you would be so disgusted at my wash, hair washing habits then. <laughs> it's probably better than mine. I have awful, I have the worst hair ever. And I'm cursed with terrible haircuts too. Um, so I actually would be, you know, it would just be in line with the rest of my hair experiences to not be able to wash it for <laughs> I reckon that's got to be one of the most fearful relationships that I build. Even though I'm a, a man with short hair, Changing barbers is it's a risky experience. <laughs> it's so bad. I never in one place long enough to like establish a relationship with a hairstylist. I just go to wherever I can to be like, um, all, uh, one, one hairstylist I had, she said, in, instead of saying gray, she would be like, your sparkles. <laughs> cover your sparkles. I'm like, that's so cute. But yeah, haircuts for me, I just always go poorly. So. I love sparkles. Just, just rock a Rapunzel. That's I cut my right. hair with nail scissors in the bathroom. I did really? Yeah, I do. <laughs> See, if you let your hair get long enough, it's not noticeable if there's a mistake yes. through it. I live in a bun. You can't tell how terrible my hair is. It's fine. It's all good. Just don't care. 
Um, now, Gabby, if people wanted to find you either for coaching or just to talk about like their hair habits, where would they find you? <laughs> uh, vitamin PhD on Instagram and Facebook. VitaminPhDNutrition.com is my website. If they want to reach out to me for coaching or um, they want to find my podcasts or things that I've written or presentations and whatnot, um, those are all listed there. So please do reach out. Great. Love it. And Shannon, how can people contact Flex Success <laughs> or you on Flex Success? I run the Flex Success account, just Flex underscore success, or um, I do have an Instagram account as well. That's just Shannon Beer underscore. Cool. Perfect. Um, we're on Facebook as well as Instagram and YouTube as well. And obviously we have a podcast. You would know that because you're listening to this right now. Uh, <laughs> if you haven't figured that out yet, <laughs> maybe unfollow. We're too smart. For you. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for listening. And thanks for joining us, girls. Cool. Thank you. Thank thanks, you. Girls.